Welcome to the Trend Detection Podcast, powered by Sensei, an industry leader in using AI to drive scalable and sustainable asset performance and reliability. This is our sixth live episode. We are joined by Robert Russell, CTO and co-founder at Sensei, to discuss how to get out of predictive maintenance pilot purgatory. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, um, welcome everyone to the Trend Detection Podcast um, live edition. Um, we've been running these um, throughout this year, and there's been a bit of a gap actually um, recently, so I'm really pleased to bring it back. Uh, today we're joined by Rob Russell, um, CTO and co-founder at Sensei. Um, I'll ask him to introduce himself in a sec, but today we're talking about how to get out of PDM pilot purgatory, which I know Rob has some strong um, opinions on. So Rob, if you'd just like to introduce yourself quickly. That'd be great. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Rob Russell. I'm the CTO here at Sensei, uh, one of the co-founders. Um, my background is as a mechanical systems engineer from education, but I've uh, always been involved in and around software projects related to condition monitoring, predictive maintenance, and uh, maintenance and reliability. Fantastic. So yeah, that's... Um, oh, actually, before, before we dive in, just as a, I guess, a quick reminder to, to people maybe new to the podcast if you've got any questions at any point please um pop them into the chat at the bottom um i'll either invite you to come on and ask rob live which is quite good to get the conversation started or if you if you don't want to do that absolutely fine i could ask the question for you but either way it'd be great to hear some of your thoughts on this um really interesting subject so if we just get started so i guess the good place to start first of all would be to define what is pilot purgatory and a wider question why do companies end up getting stuck in this sort of cycle yeah so what, what we've noticed actually with some organizations is that you you get um initiatives that that are taking place maybe in um you know like one dedicated showcase factory and they're potentially you know you've, you've got you may be closer to headquarters and you've got a lot of support in and around that but then as you move out from those pilots and you try to take it into other plants and other geographies, um, you end up hitting a lot of stumbling blocks uh, and you end up having to rerun those pilots and exercises again. Um, in other cases, sometimes it's the general expectations that you set at the, at the start of the pilot. If you get those wrong, you end up in a very long, arduous cycle where uh, you're never quite sure what's the, what's the exit criteria then to move that forward. And, and what's sort of behind that caution? I mean, is it is it an organisation thing? Is it from sort of the sea level? Is it from the engineers or the maintenance teams? Where, where do you sort of see that the most? Or is it a combination of all? Yeah, each each sort of client has, its, has their own differences, but typically you can see sort of trends of the fact that, you know, predictive maintenance in general, although in a lot of sectors the, the concepts have been around for a long time decades in some some cases um it's still relatively new to some areas of industry and now that we're building that on top of newer connected technologies um there's there's so many little bits to those that building block that need to come together all at the same time um and, and you know that's one of the reasons that we we started sensei sort of when we did we just saw the opportunity in that in that connectivity and machines and data the other, the flip side of it as well is, is, is beyond the technology, it's ensuring that you've taken into consideration how you're going to make it work within your business. How are you going to uh, drive forward 
the cultural change in your organization and, and manage that change as it goes out. Uh, and also ensuring that you're going to be targeting and focusing on, uh, you know, improving business success. We don't just do technology for the sake of technology. And it's in order to sort of initiate that sort of culture change. I mean, I mean how does, I guess, from a sense perspective, how do we help facilitate that culture change or provide the, let's say, the building blocks for it? It's probably a good place to put it. Yeah, so, so, so we, we ensure that, you know, there's a considerable amount of expertise within our customer-facing teams covering the delivery area that within condition monitoring and predictive maintenance, um, but also, are, you know, I've got an affinity with the environments that the customers work, are working in. So, they, you know, they might have, might have a, a link back to um, sectors that have already applied condition monitoring, like kind of rail or somewhere like this, um, and can bring those lessons learned to some of the, the sectors where it's a bit newer. Uh, and underpinning that, we've defined a key methodology where we've learned some lessons over, over the years as the best way to, to do this. So we've captured that and we use that to underpin our ways of working with customers and, uh, and help them to manage that cultural change going through that operational phase. So when, so when we're in initial sort of discussions with a, a customer or say potential customer, um, so weighing up the benefits between a, what are the benefits and disadvantages of a pilot project or leading with that rather than a sort of a full rollout? Yeah, as long as the pilot is at a meaningful scale, you can get lots of lessons learned about uh, defining your internal best practices and uh, your best ways of working uh, and how you can communicate in language that will be effective across your business and everybody will understand. You know, we, we're, we end up you know, looking across different sectors and we're, we're, we're only actually separated by, by vocabulary. Everybody's trying to achieve very similar things. But being able to communicate the, the benefits effectively is key. Um, and, and then how do you capture those business successes uh, and demonstrate how you can extrapolate that to, to, to how, the, how that will look like at scale is really key as well. Absolutely. That might be a good thing to go into a little bit more. So into, what do you mean in terms of business successes? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of the questions that, that we get asked in those early sort of sales meetings is like, you know, Rob, what, what sort of sensors should I buy to work with Sensei? And, you know, what what sort of uh, data should we, be, should we be gathering? But I think that that's not the first question really we should be addressing. We should be addressing where's the, where's the problem in the business? What, what's the key business outcome that's not being satisfied? Is, is it uh, downtime on assets? Is it um, high maintenance costs? Is it a lack of understanding of um, you know, the, the, the health condition of some of those machines that's affecting um, you know, delivery stage? So, so you've got, you know, people have got objectives to you know, do on full and in time delivery um, to clients. Is, is that what you're affecting? And once you get to the bottom of that, then you link that through to the actual problems with the machines and the assets. And then the other questions start to come up what's the data that is required to resolve those problems i guess it depends across industries because some industries are focused on it more than others but is is downtime sort of a primary primary factor by how 
you know, if we talk about the problem, which which companies approach us with, is that the prime factor, or are there others that that come up as well in conversations? Yeah, I mean, it's it's highly like it's highly dependent on the sector and the type of manufacturing. Um, and in some companies, you know, they've solved the downtime problem and they solved it by applying lots and lots of preventative maintenance and just over maintaining the machines. Um, you know, downtime's are an easy and quick win for us to address with most of our customers because we can eradicate that relatively straightforwardly. But once you're looking at things like um, removing um, preventative maintenance overhauls and inspections, you, you need a bit of evidence to get the confidence to do that. So these are typically the things that will come after some months, maybe a year into a project where you, you've got the confidence that you're capturing the, the failure modes uh, and then you can start to get what I call maintenance credits. So you get those maintenance credits back by using this technology uh, and reduce that maintenance burden. I guess typically, how long would a pilot usually last? And I know, again, that can depend, or how long should it last, I guess, because to get that value or to show that value, as you were suggesting. Yeah, I mean, ideally, you want you want to be um, looking at something that's between three and six months, ideally. But that there's a there's prerequisites to that, ensuring that you've got the right sort of connectivity, the right setup, and you've been involved in the selection, as I mentioned, of the, the right type of assets that's going to have that business impact. Um, but that sort of live running phase. Um, I would typically think of three to six months, but you might have another three months in front of that to get up and running. Uh, typically, we go into what we call an initial deployment project um, and set that up for a 12-month period, uh, looking at some point within that 12 months to have that sort of aha moment where you've captured the right metrics and you can start moving forward into that scaling project past the pilot. And, and is there an optimum number of machines to start with? Um, yeah. Yeah, so, be, because a lot of what you're trying to demonstrate is um, based on chance as well. So, so, you, so you're looking for the opportunity to demonstrate that you could avoid a failure within a machine. Uh, so you want a certain population to ensure that you've got the highest probability. So we, we typically push for these initial deployment projects to be, you know, around about 100 machines. Uh, and if it can be more than that's better. Um, so that could be 100 motors, 100 gearboxes. It could be a mix of motors, gearboxes, or maybe conveying systems. And and also, I guess, on the, on the back of that as well, so um, a larger amount of machines, not focusing on a small number, is better. And you mentioned sort of getting the, the right types of data and connectivity maybe you could go into that a little bit more rob as well yeah once you once you've established how to connect up to a specific machine type um you know that 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 that's work that can be repeated so so for example if, you, if you're getting in place an architecture to get data from a shop floor through to the cloud um you know it's the same level of effort to do that for one machine as it is to do it for 100. So there's a lot of benefit there. Uh, and if you've got within that um, 100 machines within the project, you'll have a lot of duplication in there because you'll be looking to get a wider population. So again, um, you solve the problem once is to understand the right type of data, the right type of connectivity, uh, and then you, ex you expand that out um, beyond that, uh, that machine type. 
I mean, presumably as well, it's possible to begin a pilot if you have no no sensors at all, no hardware at all, and you just want to get started monitoring machineries and get up and running. Or is, is that a possibility, or is that more more difficult? Yeah, and again, it, it depends the sort of thing that you establish. What what is the what the type of problems in the business that you're trying to solve? And what we what we'll tend to do is move the conversation on to understand in parallel what data is available and what what type of failures are they and then we match those two things together because in a lot of cases we find that there's already data available within process and control systems that can readily be repurposed to cover those failure modes you might find somewhere you're going to have to have uh, additional sensing um, in a lot of cases you can maybe gather additional tags out of a control system or a drive uh, and, and then start to utilize that as, as your condition monitoring data. So I guess it helps to add, add more context. Is that the right way of putting it? Add yeah, context, yeah exactly. So, so within your maybe your MES system, you've, you've got information there about you know the, the speed of production lines, the type of product that's being made. So that context can come in as well. Yeah. So. Uh, and I think, because I mean, I picked up, this topic actually from one of our white papers on our website and there was a emphasis on live data as well the importance of it is that something you can sort of expand upon as well well that's beneficial i guess yeah and it's sometimes you get different types of challenges and with initial engagements with customers you you might find that somebody has uh, is going out to the market with uh, a fixed data set where there's certain things that they they know are within that data uh, off across maybe you know five ten machines and want a demonstration that the the technology and the analytics can capture that, but that that's that to me isn't really the point in a pilot. You want you want to be utilizing it in a live scenario and like I say, with a higher population of machines. So if you think about hundred machines, then you've got the opportunity to actually do that across um, an entire production area within your plant. And at the same point, then you're moving um, beyond just checking out the technology. You're, you're actually engaging with um, real users within that environment. And you're starting to understand what are the challenges that those users are going to face? What are the things that you need to change in your operations and your ways of working, your maintenance strategies and maintenance policies um, there as well? And that's, um, to me, is, is probably more important aspects of, of what you want to discover during that pilot um, and, and gather those KPIs that you are, or the results of the, the impact you're having on the KPIs, sorry. And that scalability aspect you, you talk about, so how easy is it to scale from say 50, 100 to 1,000 to tens of thousands of machines? What's that, what's that process like in, in reality? So we talk about scalability a lot, so it's, it's interesting to find out more about that. Yeah, well, this is key where you, you work with um, individuals from the, you know, the automation and control side as well as the, the, the business uh, IT side. So you've got the IT and the OT worlds are sort of being, the, the line's very great and blurred between it. Uh, and, and we make a, a focus in the, the early stages to talk about a lot of the, the architecture and the technology that's going to be required. So during the... The pilot, for example, one of the key metrics that I like to track is the um, the length of time, both in human effort and you know duration, as in hours and days, 
that it takes to onboard uh, a new asset. Uh, and and you, want to, you want to understand that. So as you're bringing in these 100 machines, you might start with the initial 10. Hopefully by the time you brought in the last one, it's just a few minutes of human effort and then um, you know, a matter of hours in the data of sort of pre-processing the historic data and, and getting up and running. And yeah. that's proving to you that as you move into a scale scenario, you know, you, you, you can actually, it's achievable with uh, both the human and technical resources. Yeah, so it's not about one or the other, it's about both working together to achieve that scalability. Yeah. I just wanted to pause at this point. So just to, as a reminder to people, if, if you have any questions for Rob at any point, just um, drop it into the chat. Um, so you don't, we're not waiting for like a Q&A at the end or anything like that. It's just as, as we go kind of things, don't feel free if you've got a burning question, just drop that in. So I just thought I'd say that. Um, so actually going back to the, the white paper I mentioned earlier, there was, a, there was an interesting piece which compared predictive analytics and predictive maintenance. So what, what, what I was wondering is how does that affect a pilot project? I guess what's the differences between the two? Or is there, I guess they overlap quite a bit. Um, and how does that affect a pilot project? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fundamentally, it's, it's the difference in sort of expectation that you find as a result of uh, maybe maybe some levels of hype in marketing. Uh, you know, there's, we use some levels of predictive analytics behind our solution and it's, it's core to what we do. But what we're doing is we're enabling a change in maintenance philosophy and maintenance strategy, which is predictive maintenance. And that's allowing you to take some of the concepts that have existed for decades related to condition-based maintenance and allowing you to utilize the connectivity and technology you have in your, your factory to expand it, not just to those 10 or 50 or 100 critical assets in your plant, but you can apply it across the balance of the plant to you know, hundreds to thousands of, of, uh, of assets in the plant. When you talk about predictive uh, analytics on its own, you know, the, these are underlying techniques um, from AI and ML that are used for a variety of different things, I mean, whether it's looking at credit card fraud or uh, you know, behavior of, of, uh, in, in the retail sector. Um, they're, they're, they're sort of, it's a, it's a toolbox that you build solutions from, in my view, whereas uh, we very much look at the implementation of the solution and, and with that focus specifically on maintenance and uh, enabling, uh, you know, a, a higher degree of maturity within that maintenance process. And you talked about critical assets again. I mean, how how common is it for you to, when you're talking to um, prospective customers? Uh, how difficult is is it to shift the conversation away from just wanting to focus on critical assets? Because on one level, it's understandable in a way that you know the most important assets we need to keep running. I just want to focus it on that. But how do you how do you explain the benefits of sort of expanding that out to all assets? And um, I guess is scalability a part of that? Maybe as well. How easy? It is a part of it, but I think that's it's, it's, again, it's key to think about those key business problems and business challenges. This is maybe where some of the approach and the discussions that we have and recommendations maybe jar a little bit with more traditional reliability engineering, where you'd be doing um, fuel and mode effects and criticality analysis, so for Mika, um, and then looking how to drive that maintenance policy forward using that. Now, a lot of those high criticality assets, you know, there's a good chance that they're maybe um, over-engineered already um, and they're very well maintained and well understood. 
typically they aren't the things that cause the big surprises and the, the pain points. It, it can a lot of the time be ancillary equipment, whether it's um, you know environmental services, whether it's uh, you know compressed air solutions that are bringing in you know energy into the factory, um, and it can sometimes be some of those uh, smaller machines that cause the problem. It's not until you've had a look at maybe. 12 or 24 months of maintenance records or loss reports or downtime reports and start to trace those back to the common causes. It, invariably, you, you discover it's, it's not those critical assets because you've got those under control um, because you've been able to invest because of that level of criticality. It's the other areas where you can't quite justify the human resource to do the condition monitoring on them that you're going to get a lot of the benefit from a predictive maintenance solution. That's interesting what you're saying. So it's digging into the data to, to, to find that out. So is that a common theme where there's surprises within that data that they didn't realise, oh, actually, maybe we should be focused on these assets instead? Yeah, and, and you, can, you can uncover quite a lot, even just looking at the, the breakdowns and the, the types of maintenance. Uh, you know, so, sometimes... It can be quite quite revealing when when you sit with a client and you just look at the the maintenance history and you find maybe two thirds of uh, the maintenance in the last twelve months has been corrective maintenance uh, and the response back usually is Rob if you if you can just help me invert that pie chart uh, and and I can get much more control of this situation um, I don't mind doing more maintenance that's based on your technology and a predictive maintenance cycle um, but if I can get rid of that those surprises that come from corrective maintenance, uh, you know, the, I've got a far better relationship with the, the production manager and the rest of the plant because we're, we're removing those surprises from the business. And I think, I mean, this is something your, well, our colleague Alex mentioned before that like predictive maintenance isn't like a silver bullet. And so it's not necessarily you should get, you should stop doing sort of planned maintenance intervals. It should sort of work side by side. Is that something you sort of agree with as well? Yeah, it's just another um, you know tool within your maintenance strategy. You know, things like you know reactive maintenance will still exist. You know, you won't typically put a predictive maintenance approach onto um, you know some very basic things like light bulbs, for example. You know, you you just change them as and when, whereas you'll have more complicated or more involved maintenance strategies um, for for different asset types. The, the benefit you might be able to achieve is look is, is you might have a preventative maintenance task that you have to do maybe once every month. Um, once you've got that connected up and you're reliant on a predictive maintenance strategy, you might be able to move that out to once every six months um, where you'll, you'll do that um, you know, human inspection of the machine, but you've got much more confident that you know, from a, a digital perspective, you've got the eyes and ears on the, on the solution and your, your attention will be brought to if there is anything unusual happening. Yeah, so and also part of that is a it's a better use of resources. So you're not just doing that plan maintenance because you have to. You could be well, it, it, yeah, so you could be more confident that that is the, the right way to put it, I guess. Yeah, and then it plays into that whole um sort of sustainability angle as well, because you know, if if you're in there replacing consumables unnecessarily, um, you know, you're you're replacing components because you know you you're you've got um concerns that they might fail prematurely. You can be saving um, on spare parts, saving on consumables, as well as saving on um, unnecessary labour costs. 
Yeah, and I imagine that's that's a benefit that a lot of companies don't really consider up front anyway. And how uh, I think it's, it's fair to say it's sort of incremental benefits of that. It's not like we're not a sustain, sustainability silver bullet again to fix all sustainability issues, but it's what we can do to help you know people meet yeah, those sort, yeah. sort of goals as a company as well. Um, I just yeah. wanted to touch again on, on on KPIs as well about measuring the success of a pilot. So what are the sort of KPIs that you, you generally see as a way to measure that success or failure? Yeah, and this sort of links into what we've just been discussing. It's how you can um, un- understand what are those objectives that you've got from the top level in the business. And that increase in um, availability uh, is, is key, um, but it could be trying to, you know, invert that ratio that you've got of uh, corrective to preventative maintenance uh, as, as well as looking at even things like spare consumption you might be on spares holding you, you might be looking to actually have a a, a, a reduced set of uh, spares that, that you pull within your your local area uh, other areas it's also there, there can be impacts on um other aspects that you could see where you know, as you've got these machines running better, um, you know that you're having less quality issues. So some examples we see where machines are improved in their maintenance, you've got less leaks of lubrication and, and other factors that can be contaminating product as well. So these are like secondary benefits that we see. Oh, no, excellent. Um, and also, so in te- in terms of, I wanted to look at the, the flip side of the coin, because obviously there's pilots that are very successful and there's pilots that aren't very successful. Um, so first of all, what, what would be the next steps following a successful pilot? So you've you know, been monitoring 100 machines, you've seen um, some KPIs have been met. What, what would be the next step at that stage? So, so typically the, the, what, we end, what we see clients doing, what we support them in is taking the findings from the the pilot so whether it is you know we've proven across that population of 100 machines that we've had an avoidance of downtime um there's potential for uh, extending the the maintenance out by 50 percent maybe we've been consuming less parts taking that data now for that subpopulation and extending that out across the plant uh in a way that you can pull together uh, the business case and then you can you can enable that enhancement and extension of the project across maybe the rest of that plant or actually going to another plant as well. And is there ever a case for, for, for extending a pilot as well? I'm not sure how long that period would be, but even say another six months, has there been cases where that's been more advisable rather than going for a full rollout at that stage? Yeah, there have been some examples where we've struggled to get the evidence. You know, you, we've gone into some situations where uh, we've maybe not put so much focus on selecting the right type of machines. We've been taking maybe too much guidance as to where it's been technically easier to connect. Maybe they're newer machines. And, and you've ended up, you know, three or six months in, nothing really that interesting has happened. Uh, and, and those are the cases where, you know, we'll work in a review process and decide, do we either extend and carry on working with these these machines in the, in the hope that something will start to fail uh, and we can detect it? Or do we flip and actually look at a different population of machines and reassess 
what the right machines were. I guess I guess that does form part of that pilot purgatory side of it. If you, you go into another pilot, then another pilot, and another pilot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we've we've had examples like that. And I mean, the early days where um, we've been drawn into pilots, where you know the, the clients got a a nice new factory. It's all you know digitized. It's all industry industry four ready. Um, and so that's when we want to run the trial. Um, now you know we. We know the right question to ask, but at the time you end up running the pilot and nothing happens. And then you kind of turn to the customer and say, well, how, how many machines are you expecting to you know, have problems here? Um, the answer is typically, well, this is a new factory, not many at all. So it was the wrong place to go. We, we should have gone to the, the older plant um, where they were having lots of problems and tried to help them solve that. Have you, have you ever been surprised by um, a pilot where it appears they're all set up. They've got all the all the data, the right machines, or you you select the right machine, gone up through all that due diligence. Um, have you ever been surprised that it's you know after all that it's it's failed at that point? I guess there's things that happen outside of control which which affect things as well. Yeah, so in in a lot of the those well, and the, the sort of cases maybe where that happens, it is where the we haven't specified it out properly. Uh, and what you end up doing is maybe stuck with the, the team that's covering the sort of digital innovation or the digital strategy. And you've not got that full engagement with the, the local team on the ground. So, so they have been under the, the impression that, you know, that you're coming in to do a test or an experiment in their, in their factory on their machines, but they have not been fully engaged with. So, the trouble is that you end up with this lack of connection between what's actually happening and maybe what the, uh, the, the the digital transformation team are doing, running the system in the background, maybe in a, a sort of an asynchronous way. Uh, these are where a lot of the challenges come up. Uh, and it's best to actually try to get this in the hands of the, the target users as, as quickly as you can, which, which end, end up being, you know, it's a subset of the maintenance team that are maybe responsible for driving maintenance strategies forward. Maybe it's some local engineers that are really focused on on using this and getting the getting the benefits from it. And actually, that, that leads on to my next question nicely. So I was going to ask how how important is it to engage users with the project? And I guess it might be good to touch upon some sort of best practices for do, for doing so. As you've sort of, I think you said a couple of times, it's very important to do that. So that'd be good to expand upon. Yeah, and, and we identify, you know, a, a wide number of uh, stakeholders, for want of a better term, that we want to engage with right the way through from who, who's the that local predictive maintenance champion. It is somebody that's typically, um, you know, in, in some sort of reliability engineering type of role. Uh, but also we need to make sure that we've got the right sort of IT support within the, within the, in the project. Um, and, and we scope all of those out um, and, and we've got, part of our methodology is to capture that information uh, and then work together with the team so we understand where this, some of those skills gaps might be uh, and, and make sure that we've got enough resource to run that sort of minimal viable pro project, really, and a minimal project team to move forward. And I guess, again, when, when talking to customers, is it sometimes they underestimate what's required in order to to sort of run a pilot or even a wider predictive maintenance project, but they maybe don't have the team or the resources that, 
they they thought was required. Yeah, I mean, I kind of really good analogy to that is something that comes out of the agile software development world is something that they call the, the sort of J curve, where you know when you introduce a new technology or a new process, you go through a certain level of um, inefficiency before you actually take that step up in efficiency. And what I mean by that is you're going to be running the pilot alongside your current ways of working. So you need to commit um, some extra level of, of, uh, of resource into the pilot, but understanding that once you move this beyond and you get it into steady state, that level of effort actually will reduce and, and get much greater than the current level of effort that you're putting into the project. Um, so as long as that's recognized that, you know, to, to run the pilot, there's um, a requirement to have some extra time from extra team members. One of the ways that, you know, it's the early days, we used to um, offer like a free pilot, right? In the early days, we were, we were you know, we were trying to get market traction and it was a customer reflected back to me, he goes, Rob, it's not really free. He said, because I've now got to go and uh, allocate um, budget internally for the people that are going to work with you. Um, so he recognized that straight away. Um, that, that there's uh, that there's there's extra resource required to help run these. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's that something. Nothing in life is free, as they Nothing. say. No, <laughs> no, free lunch. No, no such thing as a free lunch. Absolutely. Um, so I've sort of come to the end of my question, but I was just wondering if you could um, uh, maybe summarise your thoughts on sort of pilots versus rollouts, and just before we close, just yeah, just summarise that would be good. Yeah, so, so the, the important thing is to really focus in and understand what it is that you want to learn and understand from the pilot, whether that is the um, right type of technology and architecture you want to put in place, but never losing focus on the business outcome, on um, making sure you've got very clear sets of success criteria defined and you can work jointly you know, with the team, whether that's you know, a company like Sensei and your own internal teams and keep focusing back on what are those success criteria that you're trying to measure through this process um, and ensuring that you've got key checkpoints along the way uh, where you're gathering that information, reviewing on it and making sure you're on track uh, and, and, and staying agile and uh, through the process. If you're finding that you're, you're not in the right area, you're not in the right facility, um, you've not got the right um, engagement from the team, you know, be prepared to stop and, and resolve those problems and then move forward again. Excellent. No, really excellent advice. Um, so before, before we finish, I'd, I'd recommend um, we have a resources up on our website, but there's a lot of the themes we've talked about today. There's a white paper called Wise, um, sorry, how to run a predictive maintenance proof of concepts, which obviously very aligns with what we talked about today. So I'd definitely recommend downloading that for some more information about what we talked about today. But um, but yeah, besides that, um, thank you everyone for joining today. I hope you found it useful. And thanks to Rob for being an active participant as well. <laughs> thank you. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. So that was the sixth live episode of the Trend Detection podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in reading more about this topic, please download our white paper, which is linked within the show notes. We're hosting a live event every two weeks, so if you're interested in joining in the next one, please email marketing at sensei.io or visit the events section on our website to sign up. 
please subscribe via your favorite podcast provider if you'd like to be notified about future episodes. And it would mean a lot if you could let us know your feedback by leaving us a review. You can find out more about how Sensei can reduce unplanned downtime and contribute towards improved sustainability within your manufacturing plants by visiting Sensei.io. Thanks a lot for listening.